So starting in Genesis 16, reading from verse 1 to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. When she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram, as far as the reading of God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to hear your word this morning. May you grant me faithfulness in preaching it, and may you grant the listeners diligence in hearing it. And in hearing your word, may we be transformed by it. And in hearing your word, may we see our Savior, Jesus Christ, shining all that much more brightly as the hero and redeemer of this story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sick and tired of waiting. I'm just going to do it myself. You've probably thought that at some point, and for better or worse, if you've thought that at some point, you've probably acted on it at some point. I'm sick and tired of waiting. I'm just going to get it done myself. We live in the DIY age. So if you go on YouTube right now and you just start typing, how do I dot, 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 there is a video for every skill, every problem, and every task aimed at teaching you how you can do it yourself. But many of us, present company included, have learned the hard way. It's one thing to watch someone teach a skill on a video for seven minutes or less, and it's another thing entirely to try and actually do that in real life. We have had some DIY disasters. So garbage disposal, this is a totally fictional story. Garbage disposal under the kitchen sink has stopped working. And when you were alerted to it, you promptly called the plumber who said, I'll be there first thing the next day. That was two next days ago. So now, guess what? You're sick and tired of waiting, so you're just going to get it done yourself. Well, an hour into your DIY attempt at the garbage disposal, not only is the garbage disposal not fixed, but the sink is leaking, the drywall is damaged, and you broke one of those thingamajiggers. <laughs> and now, 
the doorbell rings and it's the plumber. And you don't know whether to hug him or give him a piece of your mind. Well, that, that's somewhat of a silly example of a DIY disaster. It's, it's low stakes. The consequences are, are less severe in the grand scheme of things, although you probably don't feel like it in the moment. What happens when the stakes are higher and the consequences are more severe when we, we try to DIY? Well, well, here's a real example, and I'm, I'm going to use fictional names from, from my own ministry experience. I was sitting across the, the booth from them at Panera. Uh, we'll call them Christopher and Gladys. Because uh, as much as I was dreading the conversation, I knew it needed to happen. There, there was too many red flags regarding their relationship. And yes, they're older than me, but I, I knew I needed to have this conversation because the red flag. The first red flag was found out that they weren't married, but they were living together. Second red flag was when I talked to Gladys's previous pastor of 10 years, and he told me that she had gone to him for marriage counseling, and he said, Please do not marry this man. It will not go well with you. And that's why she came down here. And the third red flag was when they came to church and and kept taking communion without hesitation or reservation. And so the Lord would not let me rest until I had this conversation. My conscience was pricking me and plaguing me. And all it took was three questions. First question, would you guys both profess to be Christians? Yes, they, they both answered answer very quickly. Second question, well, do you desire to honor Christ in how you live your life? Both, again, answered yes. Third question, can you help me understand and reconcile how your answer to those first two questions lines up with the current state of your relationship right now? And that's when Gladys broke down and said to me through tears, I just didn't want to be alone anymore. I just didn't want to be alone. She was sick and tired of waiting for God to alleviate her loneliness, so she decided to do it herself. And she forsook God's plan and God's timing for her own alternative solution. But it turned out, as it turns out many times, alternative solutions only present alternative problems. The I'm sick and tired of waiting, I'm just going to do it myself mentality and method is not a modern invention with the age and dawn of YouTube, okay? It has been around since at least Genesis 16, and I would argue Genesis 3 as well. What we learn is that we are prone to a DIY mentality in our relationship with the Lord, and our alternative solutions only create alternative problems. And so what we have here in this text is a DIY disaster. I was going to title it, you know, Sarah Abraham and Hagar's Jerry Springer show or something. And what we learn from this DIY disaster is this. Oh, the mess we often make when God's plan and time we forsake. Oh, the mess we often make when God's plan and God's time we forsake. So we're going to look at this text under three headings. The motivation to forsake God's plan for our own. The mess we make when we do that, and yet the mercy that God shows us even when we do that. So first, what's the motivation? What, what temptations present themselves that cause us to contemplate or actually forsake God's plan and God's time for our own? One of the motivations we see in the text is a growing frustration in Sarai. You could say a frustration that is bordering on bitterness with the Lord. Look at verses 1 and 2, Genesis 16. 
Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, here's the key. Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. You think she said that platonically? Just, no, this is just a matter of fact. I I think we're, we're to sense her frustration bordering on a bitterness. Because one of the things we see recurring in the story of Abraham is the disparity between promise and reality. Promise is you're going to be a great nation, Abraham. Multitude of peoples that you can't even number. Reality equals Sarah had borne him no children. Sarah was barren. For a wife at this time, in this culture especially, this this has changed quite a bit in our culture. It's, It's still there a little bit. But... Wife's value and identity was was really wrapped up in her ability or lack of ability to produce offspring, to to continue the family line, as it were. Well, how much more for Sarah, who's not only bearing this cultural burden, but feels like she's bearing this promise burden? Well, God promised Abraham that he was going to be a great nation, and am I the one who's hindering this problem? Am I the problem? Well, as we read about Sarah's struggles with barrenness, we're meant to keep in mind one of the effects of the fall in Genesis 3. So Genesis 3, 16, that's what the Lord said. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. This is not just speaking to the physical pain of birth, which I hear is is almost what a man experiences when he gets a cold. It's pretty close (laughs) to that. Yeah. But the pain will be associated with all aspects of childbearing. That's what the Lord is saying here. It's not just physical birth, but all aspects of childbearing will be now marked by the curse, the fall. So there's the struggle to have children. There's the pain in bearing children. And then there's the heartache of raising children. Think of Genesis 4. They had these children, and then what does one do to the other? He murders them. That's part of the, the pain of childbearing, the effect of even raising children in a fallen world. I knew a couple who had major struggles with infertility. They've been married for a couple years. They greatly desired to start a family. And the beginning of each month started with a sense of optimism and hope. Maybe, maybe this, is, this is the time. And then, when there was no sign of pregnancy, ended in sadness and disappointment. And as that cycle continued, the, the sadness and disappointment then grew into frustration and bitterness. And I, I could hear the wife's heartache when she asked me, I was, I was a pastor in Minnesota at the time, why is it that the Lord has not allowed me to have children when I want to honor him and having them and raising them. And yet I see so many people who, who do not care about the Lord or don't want to raise kids according to the Lord, and they have no problem getting pregnant. I didn't, I didn't have an answer, partly because I, I knew in one sense it wasn't her necessarily looking for an answer, but it was her expressing her frustration and bitterness. And that question came from a heart that had been wrestling with this cycle of hope and optimism, frustration, disappointment for three years. Sarah is 75 years old in our text. 75 years old. So months of anticipation have turned into years of disappointment, which have turned into probably decades of potential bitterness in her heart. The Lord has prevented me from having children. That's one of the motivations to do the DIY plan, our frustration with the Lord. Another motivation for taking the DIY path is pride. And pride comes in many forms, some subtle, some overt. There's there's a subtle pride that says, you know what? I'm just going to help God out a little bit. It's, it seems like things are, are moving slow, so let me just move it along a little bit faster for him. Then there's some not-so-subtle pride that says, you know what? I know a better way to get done what God wants done, so I'll do it 
this way. Well, then there's really in your face pride, which says, you know, I'm just fed up with the Lord's way, period. I'm going to do things my own way from now on. That's kind of the spectrum of, of DIY pride. I think Sarah's DIY pride is somewhere between the, the subtle and not so subtle pride. She, she wants to help the Lord out. And at the same time, I think she feels like I have a better plan to get this accomplished because it's not getting done. Look at that plan in verses two and three. Starting in the second half of verse two, it says to Abram, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Doesn't seem very odd to us. But at that time in that culture, this was a, a very normal and very accepted practice that if you could not have children and you had servant girl, that you could use her as a kind of surrogate mother uh, and give it to your husband. And if she had children, they would be considered your children. That's how you could kind of propagate your family line. And so perhaps Sarah thinks she's being clever and helpful. The Lord didn't say, and this is where we, we start to use rationalization in our pride. The Lord didn't say explicitly that I couldn't do this. He didn't say not to do this. And the Lord also didn't specifically mention me in the promise to Abraham. He just mentioned that Abraham would have kids. So perhaps this is, you know, I'm, I'm being helpful here. But in our rationalization, we have to remember this. No matter how clever we think we are, no matter how many rationalizations we come up with, or here's the key, or even how much the culture accepts and approves what our DIY plan is. If the Lord does not approve of it, then neither should we. Our plans and methods and tactics must always be conformed to and in line with the word of God, never the other way around. Well, finally, we can be motivated and undeterred in our DIY ambitions because of sinful enablers or passive accomplices. When, when we are going down a disastrous DIY path, we need believers, we need family members who love us enough and have courage before the Lord enough to get in our face and say, this is an awful idea. This does not honor the Lord. This is not going to end well. And yet, we do things so backwards, often. We speak when we should keep our mouth shut. We keep our mouth shut when we should speak, or worse yet, we join in when we should oppose. So Abraham does things backward. He joins in when he should oppose Sarah. And by doing so, he becomes a passive accomplice, a sinful enabler. And, and what's stunning about this is, if you look at Genesis 15, the chapter just before, we're not quite sure exactly the time span, maybe a year or so, Abraham goes from this great act of faith. He believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness to in the span of one chapter, a great act of faithlessness. We can, we can be walking contradictions at times. We'll look at Genesis 16:2 in Abraham's sinful enablement. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Let me be clear. The point of this text, men, is not that you should never listen to your wives, okay? There's good, godly, wise times to listen to the voice of your wife against your own. The point is that Abraham shouldn't have listened to his wife when she was leading him into sin. The same way Sarah should not have listened to Abraham in Genesis 12:10 when he said, let's get out of the land and let's go down to Egypt. 
We should not listen to one another when the other is leading the, the other into sin. The voice of the Lord should be the loudest voice we hear. Every other voice is subservient to his. And so to state it more generally, do not listen to the voice of anyone who contradicts the voice of the Lord. His voice speaking through us to us through his word is the voice that we need to hear the loudest. Well, when we are tempted to forsake God's plan and God's time for our own, when we're frustrated, maybe even bitter, when in our pride we think we know better, when even others may be joining us and accomplishing us in this, we need to hear what Abraham should have said to Sarah in that moment. Abraham, as Sarah's husband, the one tasked with spiritual leadership in the home, should have said something like this. Sarah, I realize you are struggling with this. I realize that you want this so badly and you've wanted it so badly for so long, but this is not the way to do it. We must honor the Lord even when it hurts and even when we don't see an end to what we're struggling with because his ways always turn out better than our ways. That's what he should have said. And also he should have gone on to say, Abraham, who had just heard the promises reiterated, had seen the promises confirmed by the Lord in a special ceremony, swearing by himself that he'd fulfill them, who had just believed the promises, should have said to Sarah, I know you are weary from waiting so long, waiting and waiting and waiting, but the Lord is trustworthy and faithful. Has he not already proven that himself? Look what he's done for us so far. Continue to cast your cares on the Lord, Sarah, because he cares for you. Pray to him, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's what he should have said. That's what we need to hear when we are in danger of a DIY disaster. Because, oh, the mess we often make when God's plan and time we forsake. Well, speaking of mess making, let's consider the mess we make when we forsake God's plan and time for our own. Well, first, the general mess that they make is reminiscent, kind of a deja vu of another mess that has already been made in the scriptures. There is a strong connection here between Genesis 16 and Genesis 3 that we're meant to see. So Genesis 3, Adam listens to the voice of his wife who's leading him into sin, just as Abram does here in Genesis 16. In Genesis 3, Eve takes the fruit and gives it to her husband, just as Sarah takes her maidservant, and gave her to her husband, Abram. And just as Adam, who was tasked with spiritual leadership in the garden, was sinfully passive, so Abraham, in this moment, is sinfully passive. And just as in Genesis 3, the ramifications are disastrous, so in Genesis 16, the ramifications are disastrous. There's a connection between Genesis 3 and Genesis 16 for a reason. On the one hand, it illustrates that whenever we deviate from God's word, it never goes well with us. If I could put it in a, in a biblical formula, it would be this. Deviation from God's design always leads to disaster. Deviation from God's word always leads to disaster. DIYing may be wonderful if you're skilled in your relationship with your house, but it is a disaster in your relationship with the Lord. It needs to stay in its proper place. Well, the connection also illustrates that Abraham and Sarah are just like their first parents, Adam and Eve. They're by nature fallen, sinful, rebellious, in need of God's redeeming grace just as much as anybody. The Old Testament is not 
running a political campaign for Abraham and Sarah, trying to cover over and hide all of their faults and failures. Now, if you're looking for dirt on them, it's published right there for you in Genesis 16. You don't need to run a smear campaign on them. They've run one for themselves, as it were, right here. Why does the Bible do that? The Bible does that because it does not want us to mistake who is the hero and star of God's story. It's not Abraham and Sarah. It's not Adam and Eve. It's not Moses. It's not David. It's not Joshua. There's only one hero and star in God's story. And we're meant to look from the ones who we think it is to the one who it really is, the one we've waited for. Abraham's greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true and better Adam. He's the true and better Abraham, the true and better Moses, the true and better David. The mess of their sin should make us see the mess of our own sin, which should make us run to the mercy of our Savior, who is the hero and star of the story. He's the one who cleanses us from all our unrighteous messes. Well, that's the general mess. Now, what about the specific mess that they make in this chapter? One mess they've made is that they've distorted God's design for marriage. The text goes out of its way, especially in verse 3, to emphasize that Sarai is Abram's wife and Abram is Sarah's husband. You already know that if you've read ahead. You, You don't have to repeat that. But why does he repeat it over and over again? Because the author wants us to know that what they're doing in regards to Hagar is a deviation from God's design. It is a distortion of his good design for marriage. What they're doing is wrong. The Bible presents their sin, but it doesn't condone it. It's not promoting it. Marriage and all the gifts that God specifically attaches to marriage, like physical intimacy, are wonderful, enjoyable, God-glorifying gifts. Those gifts are wonderful gifts that display the kindness and goodness of the Lord. But when we take those gifts outside of the specific context and boundaries that God has assigned to them, we turn something that's meant to be a blessing into a curse. We turn something that is meant to be delightful and good into something that can be dangerous and devastating. Think of it like this. Fire inside the boundaries of of a campfire, fire pit, is a wonderful thing. Like on a cool Florida winter night, it is one of the most beautiful things to sit there and be mesmerized and roast marshmallows and, and do have these conversations. But take the fire outside of the fire pit and put it in a forest. It becomes a very dangerous, very harmful thing. Following God's design for marriage and physical intimacy versus distorting and ignoring it and removing it from a, to a different context is the difference between a campfire and a forest fire. Very different things. Well, another mess that our sin makes is that it damages relationships. The Lord has designed us as relational creatures in such a way that the closer we grow to the Lord, the closer we grow to each other. That it, those two things are wrapped up with one another. But what does sin do? Sin spoils this. Sin damages. Sin is a separating reality. Sin separates us from God. It drives us away from one another. Listen closely to verses 4 to 6 of our chapter. And notice all the relational discord that sin has created between Sarah, Abraham, and Hagar. And when, and he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. 
I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servants in your power, do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Here's a DIY disaster. It started just with a garbage disposal, and you tried to do it yourself. Now the sink is leaking, the drywall is damaged, and you broke one of the thingamajiggers. This is what happened relationally here. The stakes are high, the consequences are more severe. Hagar taunts Sarah. Look what I can do, and you can't. I mean, she saw the wound, and she pressed it. Sarah, you're the problem, not Abraham. Sarah then blames Abraham, ironically, for successfully completing the plan that she had hatched in the first place. And Abraham is once again abdicating his spiritual leadership. It's not my problem. You take care of it. And then Sarah drives Hagar away by dealing with her harshly. Oh, the mess we often make when God's plan and time we forsake. Another mess our sin makes is increased misery. The the initial draw of temptation is that it offers us pleasure. It offers us an alternative solution that looks like it has a better outcome than what we're dealing with right now. That's why author of Hebrews calls sin deceptive pleasures. They wouldn't be tempting if they weren't offering us something. Well, consider the outcome of this, though, the real outcome of this. Uh, In in politics, one of the polling questions they ask to to get a sense of where the votes are going to go is, do you think you're better off now than you were four years ago? They say that that's one of the, the... the meters, the metrics to tell if there's going to be a change in leadership or or not. Well, if you ask Sarah, do you think you're better off today than when you first hatched this plan? I think we could uh, confidently say that her answer would be an unequivocal, no, absolutely not. This turned out uh, to be a disaster. Alternative solutions to God's plan and designs only bring up alternative problems. The, the, The sin that tempts us always in the end takes more than we were willing to give it and gives us less than we hoped it would offer us. That's how it always works out. Well, in addition to all those messes, and there's more, uh, one of the final ones that we see here is that our sin can make the mess of unforeseen consequences. So not only does it not give us what we intended to, but what it does give us in the end is a consequence that we didn't foresee that can be harmful. Pop quiz, quickly, and just answer in your head, okay? Presbyterians, we can't say anything out loud. Is there any stain of sin on our hearts and in our lives that the blood of Christ cannot wash away if we repent and believe in him? Is there any scarlet letter that the blood of Christ cannot wash away if we repent and believe in him? Not a single one. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein. When sinners plunge beneath that flood, they lose all. Their guilty stains. There's not one single scarlet letter that the blood of Christ cannot wash away. So the blood of Christ washes away Sarah and Abraham and Hagar's sin. But here's the second question in the pop quiz. Does the forgiveness of sin automatically and always remove all the consequences of sin? The answer is no, not automatically and not always. The guilt of Sarah and Abraham's sin is taken away and canceled by the death of Christ, but 
God does not just wipe away the consequences of their sin. In fact, the son born to Hagar, Ishmael, turned out to be an ongoing and unforeseen consequence for the later promised son, Isaac, and later the nation of Israel. And you you see that a little bit hinted at in verse 12. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. Basically, he's not going to listen to anyone and nobody's going to tell him what to do. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. He's going to be a problem for Isaac and the nation of Israel. And we're not going to dig into all the details of that. We'll look more about that uh, in chapter 21. But we see is that there are unforeseen consequences that yes, the guilt of their sin is taken away, but the consequences aren't always wiped away. Well, the mess we often make when God's plan and time we forsake. But to my short and somewhat depressing nursery rhyme, we need to add a a sweeter and better line. Oh, what mercy our God displays even to those who forsake his ways. Oh, what mercy our God displays even to those who forsake his ways. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. I steal an illustration from uh, Wes Jameson. He always would say, the Lord makes wonderful omelets. What he means by that is we are a broken carton of eggs, and yet the Lord still takes us broken, messy eggs, and he makes and uses us to do wonderful things through us because of his overriding and wonderful sovereignty. And we see God's mercy displayed even amidst this mess in his actions and words to Hagar in the closing part of our chapter. God displays his mercy in seeking and saving that which is lost. Look at verses 7 to 9. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. Angel of the Lord said to return to your mistress and submit to her. If you can see on your map there that I provided for you in your bulletin, Abram was living in Mamre, and Hagar, after being dealt harshly with by Sarah, decides to take the way of Shur, which is basically it's the path to Egypt. She is trying to go back home, go back to Egypt. But she's by herself. She's pregnant, trying to traverse a long stretch of wilderness headed to Egypt. And Egypt in the Bible is not just a location, but it's a location with some symbols attached to it that aren't good. Egypt is not a good place to go in the Bible. It's a place of labor without rest. It's a place of servitude and slavery to a harsh master. It's the place of death. Don't go to Egypt. And and where she's headed and her traveling by herself all seems to be an indication that literally or symbolically she's either not going to make it or she's not going to make it better for herself by going. And yet the passage says that it was amidst this mess, even while she's running away, that the Lord comes to her and finds her. That the Lord, even in the mess of our sin, comes to us. The questions he's asking aren't questions where he's trying to find the answers to because he doesn't have them. He's coming to uncover what's going on so that she might return to him and know him. She was not looking for him, but he in his grace came looking for her. And he meets her by a spring of water in the wilderness, which beautifully represents who God is for us in his grace. Our sin drives us away from the Lord by default. 
It sends us, as it were, into the wilderness, leaves our souls parched and thirsty, looking for that which will truly satisfy. And yet God finds us there in that place. And through his son, he says to us, like Jesus said in John 4 to a woman in the wilderness at a well, whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. He finds us. Well, next, God displays his mercy in hearing and seeing us in our affliction and distress. I think what partly fueled Sarah and this DIY plan, especially in her frustration and bitterness, was that she was convinced and sensed that God had abandoned her or at least didn't hear her, didn't see her anymore, didn't care. It's been going on so long that she thought God doesn't care anymore. He doesn't hear me. He doesn't see me. And it's interesting, in the second half of the story, we're told through Hagar that that's not true. God sees, God hears. Look at verses 10 through 12. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you're pregnant, shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, means the God who sees. Because the Lord has heard your affliction, has listened to your affliction. It should be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So the name Ishmael, I said God sees, it means God hears. The very name of the child that God has now given her would be a constant reminder that the Lord, especially in our distress and our affliction, is the God who hears us, that he, he is drawn toward us in our affliction and distress. Well, then look at verses 13 and 14. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. So she encounters the God who sees. And she even, she even names the well. Beer Lahairoi, that's, that's not a craft IPA. It means the one who looks after me, the one who sees me. So, so far in Genesis 16, Hagar has been seen by Sarah as a tool in her DIY plan, has been seen by Sarah as an object of her anger and scorn, and as far as we can tell, Abraham hasn't even seen her, paid attention to her. And now she knows there is one who sees her, who looks after her, the Lord. God's hearing and seeing, it's not about his exceptional eyesight or supersonic ability to eavesdrop. It is about his heart and character towards sufferers and sinners in their distress and affliction. His heart is one that seeks us out in our sin and estrangement, despite the mess we've made. His ear is one that is not closed off, but attentive and sympathetic toward us. His eyes are not turned away or distracted by more important things, but ceaselessly fixed upon his children, who he looks after. Kids, you can think of it like this. The Lord has never lost a staring contest. He doesn't turn away. He doesn't blink. His eyes are always attentively fixed on his children, watching over them and caring for them. But how is it? How is it that God, despite the mess we make, when we forsake God's plan for our own, seeks us and hears us and sees us? Shouldn't it be the opposite? Our our sin should drive God away from us. It should cause God to want nothing to do with us. Our sin should close God's ear to us and cause his face to turn away from us. Should it not? It should, but it doesn't. Why is that? Why is it 
that despite our sin and mess, God does not close his ear, turn his eye from us. Because even though we forsake God's plan for our own, the Lord has not returned the favor. He has not forsaken his plan to redeem those who forsake him through the promised son of Abraham, our savior, Jesus Christ. And on the cross, Jesus experienced what the mess of our sin deserves so that we could experience its opposite for all eternity in relationship with the Lord. Wrapped up in the meaning of that agonizing cry from the cross is the glorious good news of the gospel. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, it's as if the father has closed his ear to the cries of his son so that they could be open to you forever as you're brought into his family by the death of Christ. And in that moment, it's as if the father has turned his face away from his son who became sin for us, even though he knew no sin, so that you forever would know his face shines upon you, looking on you, attentively aimed at you, knowing you, seeing you ever and always. And then later on the cross, he cries, it is finished. All of our attempts to DIY our salvation, our own plans, have failed. But this one has not. He has accomplished it all for us. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. But Christ, through his blood and righteousness, is our only hope. Oh, the mercy our God displays even to those who forsake his ways. Let's pray.